Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Drafted in the first round of the NFL draft on Thursday night, and you are now listening to this. Congratulations to you. Um, if you were not one of those 32 people, I hope you enjoyed watching the draft. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means, your Ohio State coverage team from Cleveland.com. It's our Friday daily pod. We did not have a Thursday daily pod because the Wednesday one was so giant, and we knew this draft react was coming. Three Buckeyes in the first round. Let's start with the most surprising thing. Nathan Baird, Damon Arnett, the number 19 pick in the 2020 NFL draft. What did you think when that happened? I had this weird feeling. It's just what, as you're watching it and you, you're kind of paying attention to which teams are going to pick where. And I had thought, you know, the, the Raiders picked a 12. I thought if, if Okuda had slipped, they needed cornerback help. So I thought if Jeff Okuda had slipped, maybe they would try to trade up out of 12 to go up since he had the two first-round picks. So I knew that in the back of my mind, I knew they needed a corner. And when it came to their pick, they're just one of those franchises that would do something like this, that would take a reach on a guy kind of like Damon Arnett, right? And I just kind of had this eerie feeling, and then Roger Goodell says the name. So um, I was surprised. I was um, – I don't know. I guess I was I was pretty close to shocked. It didn't. If, if you if he had been taken in one of the last picks of the first round, that wouldn't have shocked me. It shocked me a little bit that he went all the way up at 19, especially to then later hear Mike Mayock, the Raiders GM, say that they had trade offers for 19 and turned them down because they felt they had to take Arnett at that spot because they didn't know if he'd be there later. When we talked to the Ohio State assistant coaches uh, on Wednesday, Kerry Combs did sort of drop a, hey, watch out, Damon Arnett might go higher than you think, right? Didn't he say something like that? He did, but I thought that that meant, again, late first round. I didn't think that that meant a top 20 pick. Yeah, I didn't think it either. Steven, what was your initial reaction? I had to, like, do a double take to make sure I'd heard the pick right. I, 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 Damon Arnett coming back for his – for a fifth year, I mean, this was a kid who was borderline not getting drafted last year, and in, in 14 games, he becomes a first-round pick. I think that was, that was clearly a bit of a stretch, but like Nathan said, if any team is going to make an outlandish pick like this, it's probably going to be the Oakland Raiders. All right, so, but we don't know. So the Raiders are nuts. They're in Vegas. They wear silver and black. That We get it. Do you guys think Damon Arnett is a first-round caliber player? The Damon Arnett part of it, beyond the Raiders being unique, do you think Damon Arnett has, is the type of player who should be a first-round NFL pick, Stephen? No, I don't think so. I think he benefited. I think Jeffrey Okuda is that good. That in, in some way, Damon Arnett benefited from playing with a a guy who's pro- probably going to be competing for a Pro Bowl spot next year. And because of that, he, you know, at times maybe in the fact that Ohio State had the best defense in the country, at times he looked a little better than he actually is. I think showing it in 14 games is solid, but there's still been a, a you know, a, a record that we've seen with Damon Arnett of being handsy and sometimes penalty, 
prone prone to get pass interference calls. So I don't think taking him at 19 or anywhere in the first round seems viable for a guy, like second or third round. Yeah, but that early in the first round, I don't know. I don't. I don't he hasn't done enough. I don't think to, to show that type of talent to be among the other names of Ohio State football players who have been first round draft picks at that position. And listen, Damon Arnett is a five-year player. He was a recruit ranked in the 600s, a three-star kid out of Florida. Ohio State ended up taking him kind of late in that class because somebody else decommitted. Um, that you work yourself from a recruit in the 600s to a guy even in consideration for the first round of the draft. But to go from a recruit in the 600s to the 19th pick of all the football players available in the country in the year 2020 is is nothing short of remarkable. So all congratulations to Damon Arnett. He worked his butt off to get to this point. I don't think he's a first rounder. Nathan, do, do you think just on the player he is, regardless of the Raiders, would is he a first round player? Well, he doesn't fit what you would think of as a, a first round prototype right now, as far as NFL cornerbacks. I mean, he's not that fast. He ran a four, five, six at the combine. So not slow, but, but certainly not like exceptional um, and, and slow, I think, by first round NFL cornerback standards. Um, he's not that big. Um, and as, as Steven alluded to, this was a guy who for most of his career, um, yeah, he got on the field and started uh, for, for three years, but was also prone to, to be enhanced <coughs> to, um, to, to not being a very efficient defender especially in pass coverage, which is obviously important for cornerbacks. So I just think it's – I don't think Damon Arnett is destined for failure in the NFL. I think that the Raiders really reached here to take him where they did. I just feel like there wasn't enough – I don't see enough in Damon Arnett that separates him from either other corners they could have taken there, or I, I really don't – it, it shocks me that there would be that many NFL teams out there that had that high of a draft grade on him that the Raiders couldn't have potentially traded back even a few, a few spots or maybe even farther than that and still taken him and helped themselves with other picks. So Damon Arnett, good luck. I mean, I hope he proves us wrong. I hope he's an all pro and, and he has a great NFL career and we can replay this and show how wrong we were, but we're, our, our loyalty is to the, this audience only. And so we're going to shoot you straight. I'm shocked. I'm just shocked. Um, I sent this out to the texters. Um, the, uh, the Buckeyes now have seven corners taken in the first round in the last seven years. And I think most people know that list, but it's Eli Apple, Gary on Conley, Damon Arnett, Bradley Roby, Denzel Ward, Marshawn Lattimore, Jeff Okuda. To me, there's a top four in that group. And then there's a, a fairly sizable gap to the other three. And I'll just tell you, I set my whole list of how I would have ranked those seven coming out. I sent it to the texters. I'll tell you part of it. My top four group is Ward, Roby, Okuda, and Lattimore. And then Arnett, Conley, and Apple are in the bottom three group. And again, I think there's a gap. Apple was the 10th pick in the draft. I think that was a reach. I just don't, I didn't love him as a prospect coming out. Um, so I just think Conley was also taken by the Raiders, right? Conley was the 24th pick in the draft in 2017 by the Raiders. He was benched for a little bit in year two. He had some injuries, some tough luck with injuries. The Raiders ended up trading him in his third year to the Texans for a third round pick. So in two and a half seasons, you turn a guy who was a 24th pick in the first round into a third round pick. I mean, it's not, it's not like he's out of the league or anything, but you know, it wasn't a gangbusters pick for the Raiders. And I just think Damon Arnett is more along those lines. I think at a place like Ohio State, when there is talent everywhere, I think there are some guys who are at the forefront of that. And I think there are some guys who benefit from being around the guys who are at the forefront of that. And to me, in a draft like this, Chase Young and Jeff Okuda are guys who create it. They're the talent that creates greatness. And I think Damon Arnett, to me, falls more into the category of the kind of player who's good, but he might look great because of the greatness created by others. And that's not a knock. It's just like I'm very surprised. And, you know, there's a difference between going second and third in the draft and going 19th in the draft. I just think there's more of a drop-off than that. So, again, we're just telling you what we think. I was dumbfounded. And I know Kerry Combs wasn't dumbfounded, and I know – 
there are tape grinders who I follow on Twitter and respect who really like Damon Arnett's tape. I keep saying this, but this also would apply to Chase and Jeff, but I just think of it differently. Ohio State, the quarterbacks they played last year, other than Trevor Lawrence, sucked. Truth. Yeah. Sucked by NFL standards. I mean, Sucked yeah. by all standards. Yeah. I was watching a Damon Arnett highlight reel, and it was like every play he made was on a Jack Cone underthrow. And it was like, wow, Damon Arnett in tight coverage on some guy from Wisconsin. Jack Cohn back to pass. Chase Young is in his grill. Jack Cohn underthrows it by nine yards, and Damon Arnett bats it down. Listen, man, I, 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 you know, I mean, we, quarterbacks in the Big Ten suck is not a new topic on this podcast. But there are just some guys that are special. God, there's just a play in my head about Marshawn Lattimore. I think it might have been Oklahoma. And there are chances sometimes where you get that one or one, those one or two games a year where you're like, okay, now we got to see it. Um, Marshawn Lattimore just had a closing speed on a play. I can still see it in my head. Maybe everybody else knows the play I'm talking about. And the minute he did that, um, his one year as a starter, you were like, okay, here we go. And I feel like Jeff Okuda smothered people. And I feel like I want Jeff Okuda in my locker room and Jeff Okuda is a leader. And I know the guys really like Damon Arnett. I know the guys really like him, but, Jeff Okuda was ready, acted like a pro from day one, and Damon Arnett himself would admit that he didn't act like a pro from day one. He kind of got it in the end, and it just for a guy who maybe didn't totally get it until his fifth year, who has had some issues, who was surrounded by defensive talent, 19 just seems high to me. Nathan, you talked to him about that, right? He knows that, and I guess you can, you can view that as like, hey, in his, in his fifth year – he really got it together, credit to him. But I also think it's a little bit of like, well, why didn't you get it together the first four? I, I, I understand what you're saying. I think this is also one of those situations where um, I think it was um, some of the Ohio State coaches have talked about how much they've been on the phone with front office guys, coaches, whoever from NFL teams. This is where their input matters. And, and this is not a situation where, I mean, Ohio State coaches are going to be honest. It's not that they're going to throw their own guys under the bus, but I think they're also going to be honest because the, those GMs and coaches need to know the next time they come back to an Ohio State player and the Ohio State coach doesn't have to fib about it, that, that, that it's going to be a, a legitimate um, backing that they're giving these guys. So if, if the Ohio State coaches were signing off on Damon Arnett as a locker room guy, as a guy whose commitment is there, whose work ethic is there, whose focus is there, I think that probably resonated with NFL um, people who are making this decision. So I, I would I would imagine if you go and talk to Mike Mayock that, that either conversations he had with Kerry Combs or Ryan Day. Don't also don't forget Kerry Combs was just in the NFL for the last two years, which gives him an interesting perspective. I think as he's evaluating guys, I know he wasn't here watching Damon Arnett the last couple of years, but I think he knows enough as the guy who recruited him, as a guy who's been familiar with Ohio State football, that that combination of things probably also had some influence as he was talking to guys. And listen, I'm wrong on guys all the time. You know, I, I thought Billy Price was going to step in and be awesome. And he's as a first round pick has, has struggled in the NFL. Um, I thought I had some questions about Sam Hubbard as a third round pick and Sam's played really well, you know? So it's like, I'm not, I'm not a tape grinder. I'm not a, I'm not an NFL draft analyst, but you cover a guy for his whole career and you watch every snap he ever played. And, and sometimes you, you get a feel for things. And there have been a couple guys over the years where they went really high. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. And, and um, there've been some guys who went a little lower. that was like, I really like that guy. Um, and so, you know, again, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I don't want to make this a negative podcast, but by now you guys know we shoot you straight. Let's talk about the other two guys in the first round. Um, Jeff Okuda in the end going three, Detroit said they didn't have any offers. Um, to trade down. So they end up taking that guy there. Uh, I was on a podcast with um, Mike Rothstein who covers the lions for ESPN last night. I've known him for a long time and I was talking all about Jeff Okuda. I love Jeff Okuda. I would stand on a table for Jeff Okuda. Steven, as you think about Jeff Okuda in the NFL, and we don't know anything about Detroit's defense, so we won't try to act like we do. What kind of NFL player do you think Jeff Okuda is going to be? I think 
he's got an opportunity to be the like, Denzel Ward was a all pro cornerback his rookie year. I think Denzel Ward could be on the same trajectory. I'm sorry, Jeff Okuda could be on the same trajectory here with the Lions who obviously they trade, they needed a corner, a, a number one cornerback because they did just traded Darius Slay not too long. Ago. They got rid of Darius Slay not too long ago. So now Jeff Okuda steps into that role on a defense that needed him and, We've seen the talent art. We've seen the way he took he took away an entire side of the field all last year for Ohio State. I don't know if it's going to necessarily be to that dominant level, but he can be one of the best cornerbacks in the league the moment he steps on the field for Detroit. We do know something about Detroit's defense. We know that they tra- had a three-time Pro Bowl in Darius Slay that they traded away. We knew they had a massive hole at cornerback, and I, I, that's why I think maybe they didn't want to get fancy with it and trade out of three. Mm-hmm. They saw a potential – certain starter probably and then potential multi-time pro bowler and someone like uh, Jeff Okuda sitting there at three. And and that was a too much of a need for them to pass on. I think Okuda is going to be like a difference maker, like in the locker room. I think he's like a, just a super professional dude. Um, I really, I really like him. I really like him. I think it's going to be a really good pick. You, you let's talk about Chase Young a little bit. Again, obvious stuff. Nathan, you wrote a story about what Ron Rivera had to say about him. There was a lot of discussion in Washington um, about would, is there any thought of taking a quarterback at two, but but Ron Rivera seemed like he he liked Chase a lot. Yeah, I saw somebody, um, I can't remember which outlet it was, that wrote about um, apparently Rivera, there was some kind of a scheduling snafu at the Combine, and he ended up getting extra time to sit and talk with Chase Young. They talked like about 15 minutes of extra time that they, they didn't know what that, that they were supposed to get at the time. And that just kind of the, the vibe that he got from him and the relationship that they were building um, sort of cemented what I think they already were feeling about Chase Young at that point. And again, like one of the, another GM, I think it might've been the Lions GM was talking about how, well, I mean, there's nothing going on in sports. And so everybody's, talking about trades and wondering why everybody isn't trading out of their pick and that there's probably some truth to that. And I think that it made, to me, it made a lot of sense for the lions to explore trading out of three for, I don't know that it made a lot of sense for the Redskins. I know they didn't have a second round pick and they have a lot of holes to fill. And yeah, I know that Dwayne Haslam's didn't blow the doors off the place as a rookie, but I mean, Chase Young is potentially a a generational kind of talent as a as a pass rusher. We've seen what those kinds of players can do to a franchise in in NFL history. Um, I think Ron Rivera is a smart guy. He's a defensive minded guy. I just it, it just seemed it's it's a no brainer. You when Chase Young is on the board, there you take him. It's funny. I mean, everyone throws out comparisons, and I don't know, but I think with Ron Rivera's experience in Carolina, I think people have made some like Julius Peppers comparisons there. Right. But I think. You only need to look, look as far as Nick. Just need to look as far as Nick Bosa. And Nick Bosa made an immediate impact on a Niners team that also had other things in place. And so then you can allow a defensive end to help put you over the top. Joey Bosa has been really good with the Chargers, but the Chargers don't have as much going on. So Joey Bosa, you know, didn't get his team to the Super Bowl. A defensive end can't get his team to the Super Bowl by himself. Um but if you're good, I think you can help take a team from good to great. And so now it's just uh, – I want to touch on this a little bit. Again, the, the Ron Rivera was the Panthers coach forever. He's the new coach in, in Washington. They brought in Kyle Allen, who had been Cam Newton's backup in Carolina, um, to be a backup slash maybe challenger to Dwayne Haskins. But them not taking a, co- a quarterback in round one. There was a lot of talk about what the, the Kyler Murray-Josh Rosen situation. That did not happen to Dwayne Haskins. I think it's super important for a young quarterback to feel like he has the confidence of the franchise behind him. Steven, you know, you covered part of the end of Dwayne's career. As you think about Dwayne Haskins going into year two with the new coaching staff, um, it's just funny that, you know, Dwayne went to high school in Maryland. Chase went to high school in Maryland. Now they both went from Maryland high school to Ohio state to the Redskins. What do you think this is going to mean for Dwayne Haskins in Washington, the fact that they the, the Redskins took Chase Young and not a quarterback? He knows it's his job going forward. Coming in coming into OTAs, whenever those happen, fall, fall camp and going into the season, it's his job. And it's obviously you're competing every day. But a lot of times last year, it just didn't feel like the coaching staff didn't necessarily have the full faith in him. There were some reports that that coaching staff didn't even really want him to begin with when the Washington Redskins drafted him. And so now it's it's almost a fresh start of 
okay, I'm here. This coaching staff clearly wants me and has some type of faith in me that they went and got the obvious pick. So this is my job. And so I can relax a little bit and know that there's not a guy behind me who's maybe snapping at my job the way Josh Rosen has had to deal with. Now two stops. He had to deal with it in Arizona, and now he's dealing with it in Miami. It's crazy to think it's like my, my sister lives in DC, my niece and nephew and, and brother-in-law, they all live in DC. And um, the future of that franchise is all based around Ohio state. When you have your quarterback, your pass rusher and your best receiver are Buckeyes are young Buckeyes. Um, you know, if all three of those dudes hit the Redskins are going to be a factor. Um, if they don't all three hit, they're probably not going to be a factor. So it's just interesting uh, how this all came around. I think Chase is going to be another good guy in that locker room. And, you know, I, I don't – Terry McLaurin is as solid of a, of a guy. Terry McLaurin and Jeff Okuda, I think, are, are alike in a lot of ways. But I'm not so sure that, like, Chase won't be good for Dwayne. You know, it's like yeah. – I think you know, Dwayne's going to mm-hmm. have, like, another ally in there. Ch- you know, the quarterback's going to have another guy who's like, heck, yeah, this is my guy. You know, that if Chase is going to wind up being a, a young leader of that defense, um, maybe they can get rolling together. So I look forward to that. Again, those are all three of those guys I think are, are top shelf dudes in uh, Chase Young, Dwayne Haskins, and Terry McLaurin. So uh, best luck to them getting the Redskins rolling. Let's play trivia time. Five Big Ten players taken in the first round. Three of them were Buckeyes. Who were the other two? Steven, you go first. Who was, was one of the other two Big Ten guys in the first round? Um, it's a wonderful question that I don't See, have a, on the have spot. A Nathan, jump in. Uh, uh, Iowa offensive tackle, uh, Worfs. Worfs, okay. And Nathan, who was yeah. the other one? It was uh, Cesar Ruiz, uh, center from Michigan. So that is the depth of talent in the Big Ten. It's three guys, <laughs> a tackle, and a center. Um, the SEC, 15 first-round picks. The Big Ten, five first-round picks. And as many people uh, have been noting, um, the best teams had the most picks. LSU had five. Alabama had four. Ohio State had three. Clemson had two. Those four programs combined for 14 of the 32 first-round picks. Nathan, just on the surface, 15 first-rounders for the SEC in this draft, five for the Big Ten. How does that make you feel in your inside, in your tummy, in your heart? Oh. I, I I don't care. I mean, I don't have it. I don't have an emotional reaction. To, I don't care. I don't like. I don't. I mean, because that's this is what it is. This is. I mean, this is this. It reflects. I think um, things that we talk about. Right. The reason why a team like Wisconsin is good in the Big Ten, but isn't a national presence right now. A team like Michigan is good in the Big Ten, but isn't a national presence. There's one Big Ten team right now that's out making a national presence, and they're doing it by repeatedly getting multiple first-round picks. Um, does, this, does this back up anything? You know, it's the constant battle, and I, I know we've had, I've had this conversation after drafts a lot of the time because during a season, during a college football season, as it relates to poll rankings and, more importantly, college football playoff rankings, a lot of Big Ten fans can, can feel like the SEC is overrated. The SEC gets too much credit. Every time an SEC team loses – it's like, oh, the team that upset them, what a good upset team that was. Um, at, you know, the SEC is always going to get their champ in the, pl- in the playoff. They never would have, a, have to worry about their champ being left out. Like, all of this stuff, when you see 15-5 to 5 in the first round of the draft, does that just, is that just the rebuttal argument to that of, like, yes, the SEC is better, it is more talented, they should always get their champ in, they should probably get two teams in the four-team playoff a lot of the time. Is the NFL draft part of the proof or no, Stephen, are there still times when the, the, the powers that be in college football somehow overrate the SEC? No, I, I mean, yeah, they can overrate them a little bit, but still, yeah, the proof is in the pudding. All, where the talent, where's the talent coming from? It's coming from the SEC. It's that, and this is the, this, the NFL draft mirrors that. So when you do want to overreact and just say, oh, it's not fair that this one loss champ can get in over this one loss champ well it's because this one loss champ has more nfl talent than this this one loss champ and the nfl draft the first round of the nfl draft just proved that nathan is recording important i'm just kidding i mean i'm kind of not (laughs) these stars matter (laughs) 
because part of this too is, uh, and now I can't find the graphic. There was something about um, all the five stars, right? And I'll find it here in a second. Sometimes um, people start talking about how many five-star players became first-round picks versus how many four-stars versus how many three-stars. Here it is from Sports, Store, Sports Source Analytics. The 32 first-round picks on Thursday night. Six of them were five-stars. 16 of them were four-stars. Nine of them were three-stars, and one was a two-star. Um, so, like, you might look at that and say, hey, you know, there were fewer five-star recruits who were first-round picks than there were three-star recruits who were first-round picks. Except each year, there's only, like, 25 guys yeah. who are five-stars, and there are, like, a thousand guys who are three-stars. So I actually – this is, like, proof of, like, yes, five-stars do matter. Um, did it – I don't know, Nathan, did it – just does it tell you anything when you see – LSU, Bama, Ohio State, Clemson at the, at the top of the draft picks, or does it just reinforce the obvious? No, I, I think it reinforces the obvious, of course. Um, it, just to be clear, when I said when I said stars don't matter, it was at a completely different conversation. It wasn't about stars not mattering. You know, getting a lot of five stars doesn't help teams win. That wasn't. There's two different arguments out there, and that's not the one that I was – I was talking about a completely different thing. People can go back and listen to that. I thought, but, I thought it was – I said, Nathan, does recruiting matter? And you said, no, stars don't matter. Is that not the conversation? I that's can't, not the conversation that not, happened, no. I, I have a no. bad memory. I apologize. <laughs> we can revisit that some other time if people need a refresher. But, um, no, I mean, it's – it's listen, I mean, again, it's, it's already obvious in what we were talking about before within the Big Ten. I mean, there's one Big Ten program that goes out and gets – not just one, but like multiple, a handful of five-star guys every year, it seems like. And that's the one that's going out and, and putting itself in position to be in the playoff every single year. There's one Big Ten team that does that. I think, in, and, you know, Ryan Day said this last night when he was talking to Scott Van Pelt that, um, you know, he's talking about Young and Okuda especially. Um, and Arnett hadn't been picked yet, but he could have said that about him too, I suppose. But, like, recruiting is where that happens. And, yes, it happens when you go out and get, you go into these living rooms of these five stars and you develop a relationship and that's how you get them to come to Ohio state. Uh, both of the, both young and Okuda were considered um, no doubt guys when Ohio state went and brought them in and look how it turned out. But Arnett is definitely different. Again, Arnett was a recruit right. in the six hundreds and I'm going to write something on this, but I, you know, I went to bed. I apologize. I should have written it for this morning, but I went to bed. I actually think the way the draft went, it's like the perfect, selling point for Ohio State because there's two five stars that got went in the first round. They were top 10 national recruits when they picked Ohio State and they were top 10 picks coming out the back end three years later. You can't take for granted turning five-star recruits into first round picks and whatever Jeff Okuda and Chase Young wanted out of their college experience and out of their college football program, Ohio State gave it to them. Maybe Texas would have given it to them. Maybe Maryland would have given it to them. Maybe Ohio, uh, Penn State or Alabama or any other program, maybe they would have given it to them also, but no doubt that they got what they wanted out of Ohio State. But then the other two guys that everyone's talking about, Joe Burrow is a recruit in the 200s, Damon Arnett's a recruit in the 600s, and Ohio State loves to talk about developed here, developed here, developed here. You know, you didn't have to develop Chase Young quite as much. You know what I mean? The dude looked like an NFL draft pick when he got on campus. Jeff Okuda acted like an NFL player the minute he got on campus. They were going to be talented enough and self-motivated enough to succeed in a lot of places. So, yes, you do want that on your resume. We turn five stars into first-rounders. But to turn Damon Arnett into a first-rounder, and I don't mean turn – Damon Arnett turned himself into a first-rounder, and Ohio State certainly helped him. And then Joe Burrow, it doesn't work out here – but we help set you up and you have the opportunity to go somewhere else. It's three different with four first round players. It's three different paths, but it's something you can sell everybody. If you're recruiting a five-star, you say, look at Chase Young and Jeff Okuda. If you're recruiting a younger guy who might be worried that he's going to get lost in the talent here, you point to Damon Arnett and say, Damon Arnett could do it. You can do it too. Don't be afraid of the challenge. Come here, play with the best, prove yourself turn yourself from a low-ranked recruit into a first-round pick. And you can look at a guy like Joe Burrow and say, he came here, it didn't work out the way he wanted it to, but he still set himself up for success. 
That's every pitch out there. High recruit, low recruit, recruit that has to transfer. Ohio State checked every one of those boxes in the first round on Thursday night, and that is a great pitch for them. Caveat, I'm a little tired of the Joe Burrow is a Buckeye thing because I will say this, when Russell Wilson got drafted, I just don't, maybe I don't listen to it. Russell Wilson was at North Carolina State for three years and at Wisconsin for one. And like everybody counts him as a Wisconsin guy. And I don't hear, maybe I'm just not around enough North Carolina State people. I don't hear North Carolina State football fans walking up and down the street with a bullhorn shouting that Russell Wilson counts for us. I will tell you this. Joe Burrow was not a first-round pick when he left Columbus. If Joe Burrow, after the spring of 2018, had gone into the NFL supplemental draft instead of going to LSU, he would not have gone in the first round. So, like, I get it. LSU helped that guy go from pretty good to the number one pick in the draft. So if we're dividing up credit there, yes, he has a degree from Ohio State. Yes, he loves Ohio State, and everybody at Ohio State loves him. It's about 85-15 in the credit there. And so, you know, I get it. Joe Burrow is not Ohio State's guy on draft night. He's LSU's guy. Agree or disagree? Agree. Agree. I'm so negative. I'm so negative. We're going to come back after this. We'll be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. We're going to play a little game. Since 2014, the last six NFL drafts, Ohio State has 17 first-round picks. We're going to play a game called How Many First-Round Picks Do the Other Good Programs Have? Um, Let's start with Michigan. In the last six years, how many first-round picks does Michigan have? Steven, what's your guess? Seven. Nathan? Five. It's six. It's right in the middle. You guys are sitting down Wow, look at that. Michigan has six. How many does Iowa have? Nathan? Um, five. Steven? Three. It's four. Right <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> so whatever We're triangulating this well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many does Penn State have? Steven? Last six years. I'll go eight. Nathan? I, I think I know that. I think it's either zero or one. It's definitely not zero because they have Saquon Barkley. Barkley yeah. in this last six years. Okay, so he's the one. He's but the it's one, only right? Saquon Barkley. Yeah. It's one. Okay. Well, I'll, okay. One. One. That is unbelievable. And Wisconsin. We'll try Wisconsin. Nathan? Uh, I mean, they probably had a couple off to now. Two. Steven? Yeah, three. It's yeah, three. It's three. So I didn't look up everybody. I didn't look up, you know, Indiana and Rutgers and Maryland and Illinois and Minnesota and Northwestern or whatever. But looking at those four programs, Ohio State has 17 in the last six years. Those four four programs combined have 14. So, again, it's nothing we don't know, but it's just a reminder of of the stark gap uh, between Ohio State and everybody else when it comes to raw talent. Second rounders from the Big Ten, there actually could be a run on them. Again, five guys in the first round from the Big Ten. Guys we should see in the second round, J.K. Dobbins out of Ohio State, maybe Jonah Jackson, Antoine Winfield from Minnesota, A.J. Epinesa from Iowa, Yatur Gross Matos from Penn State, Jonathan Taylor and Zach Bond uh, from Wisconsin, also K.J. Hamler from Penn State. So they're going to have some dudes in the second round, but just not quite that elite level of stuff. Let's talk a little bit about what's coming next, not just what left Second recruit for 2022 in the house uh, went on Twitter and announced it on Thursday night just before the draft started. Stephen Means, tell us about the second Buckeye in that class. Yeah, Tegra Tishibola, the first Ohio native for the class, number 69 overall player, number six offensive tackle in the class. He was one of the few sophomores who got offered early back in November, him and Gabe Powers, inside linebacker. Ohio, listen, we talked about it when it came to the 2021 class, the fact that they got they were almost completely full with their 2020 class heading into August that it gave them a chance to get, to get out early in the 2021 class. And we're seeing the effects of that. And well, once again, we're seeing the effects of it again, where 17 guys already in the 2021 class are already committed. Now you can kind of work ahead of yourself and you've got two guys in two days in your 2022 
class already committed. Tegra's 6'6", 320 pounds, and he's about to be a junior in high school, so he looks like a 25-year-old grown man and not a 16-year-old kid that he is. By the time a lot of people hear this, I will have talked to him. He's doing a lot of his interviews this afternoon around 3 o'clock, but we're recording this on a Friday, excuse me. But once again, this is the, uh, this is a product of Ohio State has gotten out early in the in the recruiting process in one, in one class. It's allowed them to get out ahead early in the next class and already get a head start. They're one of the there's like one of four schools who have multiple commits in the 2022 class already. Um, not you can't underrate it. It's an Ohio kid. I, I do think it's interesting they got the kid out of New Orleans uh, as the first kid in 2022. The next mm-hmm. the next day they get an Ohio kid. Nathan, is it is it a big deal? We've we've talked a lot about you know the the kids in the 2021 class are kind of recruiting each other. Is it a big deal to get an Ohio kid in in the class this early for 2022? I think it's important because he seems like he's going to be a recruit who has more than just regional appeal, right? I mean, the the, the, the composite rankings aren't out yet, but I think just the 24-7 rankings have him, like, 69th nationally. Um, you know, Greg Stradrawa, these past four years, I know there was a hiccup in there that you guys have talked about, but from 2017 through 2020, the signing classes, I think they've had eight guys who were ranked either first or second nationally at their position come in as offensive line guys. Um, and then obviously Donovan Jackson in the 2021 class is ranked number one right now among the guards. I mean, they consistently go out and get, he doesn't seem to necessarily get the, the, the love that some other guys get on the staff for the job he does recruiting his position. Uh, maybe it's because he doesn't necessarily have some of the, the big splashes. It's just been a more consistent, um, ability to bring in guys of this caliber. And I think now this is something that, um, that, the new guy gets to kind of reach for here in the next two years is can he put himself up in that conversation to be that highly ranked at his position? Yeah. I mean, it's again, I don't get as excited for in-state kids because like they should get them, but they also got him, you know, and it is, it is interesting. I'm looking now, I'm just trying to think about it. You know, part of the reason they haven't, they haven't run through like, a ton of tackles who have gone super high Taylor Decker, obviously a first round pick in 2016. Um, but compared to some of the other, you know, Jamarco Jones was a fifth rounder. He was a good tackle at Ohio state. He's a fifth rounder. Isaiah Prince was a sixth rounder. Um, I'll be curious to see how some of these tackles develop with, you know, Paris Johnson, you think about on that list, Thayer Munford, I think is going to be a guy who's going to get picked. So yeah, I mean, it just, it just keeps rolling. I mean, it's, is it not almost a little bit laughable now? I mean, honestly, it feels like they get a recruit every other day. I, I, I don't even know. I think the last time they got a recruit, we talked about this, that there's nothing left to talk about. Steven, I don't, I don't want to take it for granted. I don't think we can just like shrug our shoulders and say, well, of course. But at this point, it's, it's the norm that they're in the midst of the coronavirus. They're like bringing in a top 100 dude three times a week. Yeah, Ohio. Ohio State was really prepared for this coronavirus, and I don't. In a way that oh, it seems like no other school was for obvious reasons. This, but this seems like even outside of this, had we been doing things as normal, Ohio State would still be ahead of the curve with everybody else because of what they were able to do outside of that 2019 class. Because Urban Meyer retired, they have found a way to get out so far ahead and early with their commitments and classes that. This this ball is not going to stop rolling anytime soon. So, yeah, we're at the point where every 48 hours you should be expecting a commit for Ohio State. That's where we're almost at here. I mean, people can go look at the list. There's There are legitimately really great college football programs right now who for yeah. 2021 have like four or five recruits, four or five commitments. And Ohio State is is obviously lapping the field in, in most cases for 2021 and already has two guys that are pretty highly ranked for 2022. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive. It's kind of starting to annoy me a little bit. Like I had other things I had to do last night. There's an NFL draft going on. I had purposely yeah. like set up my day. I'm getting it sit down around 4:35. It gave me like three or four hours to start writing stuff ahead that was going to post. And then this falls in our lap. Um, so if they could just hold off till Sunday and just give me a breather, Maybe I do Monday. You, Monday. I'm just asking for Monday. Are you would, chastising a kid for his decision on his co- to make his college decision? I am. I'm not chastising him. He doesn't. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. I'm not chastising him. I'm just asking 
for a solid. For the next guy, Monday. Again, I in my time on the beat, a kid committed on Christmas. So like I was yeah. like, really, you're G. committing Scott did too. What's that? G Scott did in twenty twenty as well. He committed on Christmas. On Christmas, did he really? See, I was at like nine o'clock. At like nine o'clock in the morning on Christmas. Yeah, I mean, there's some of it is like I think my rule is I don't write recruiting stories on Christmas. So like, good congratulations on your commit. I'm not writing about it until tomorrow. Um, NFL draft night is not exactly Christmas, but in Ohio it's kind of like Christmas. So I always am a little surprised when people like uh, throw their big event like in the midst of another big event. I'd rather just do it on some like random Wednesday when nothing else is going on and you are the biggest story uh, around. But it doesn't stop for Ohio State. Um, Couple things, couple housekeeping things. One, um, I got a letter uh, from a loyal Buckeye Talk listener who um, had some health issues uh, in 2017 and said listening to Buckeye Talk sort of helped him uh, have something to do while he was recovering, and now he's out training for a half marathon. So um, it's one of the nicest letters I've ever gotten. It showed up in my mailbox yesterday. And I read it immediately. My wife read it. And so I'm assuming that person is listening. And so um, uh, the idea that that this podcast could play any role in that is humbling. Um, Thank you so much for reaching out on that. It's humbling for any of you guys that listen and make Buckeye part, Buckeye talk like a a regular part of your life. Um, Sometimes when I try to like sit and think about that, that we are like in people's lives on a regular basis, it blows my mind and so thank you so much for sending that letter I'm going to keep it forever and um, I'm so happy that you're feeling better and good luck with the half marathon so I just wanted to say that Um, another thing I said I was going to talk about from the 743 got this last week Doug I'm curious as to why you haven't tweeted anything about all the layoffs taking place at the plain dealer I know it can be a tricky position to be in but the paper lost some excellent reporters and I think it could maybe go a long way if someone as tenured as you offered support and let people know what they can offer as they look for a new job. So um, I said I would get to that. I didn't mean to delay it. I, we do real talk in this podcast. This has been a difficult time for our company. Uh, the three of us are not employed by the Cleveland Plain Dealer, but all of our stories go into Cleveland Plain Dealer. It's kind of a messed up situation. Um, we all kind of work together, but we all kind of don't. The bottom line is a lot of really good reporters at the Plain Dealer were laid off, uh, including Marvin Fong, who shot photos for us for decades at Ohio State and was an outstanding photographer. Um, It was a difficult situation for the people on both sides and Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. um, We're coming together to be a more cohesive newsroom. Um, We're trying our best to to figure out the journalism world, Um, but like it's tough all around and I feel terrible for those people, but it's been really hard sometimes the balance between cleveland.com and the plain dealer. And it hasn't always been as friendly on both sides as it should have been. And I'll be honest, I didn't, there were times when I didn't like what some of the plain dealer people were saying. And I'll be honest and say that if there's any implication by anybody anywhere that implies that the people who work for the digital side for cleveland.com aren't real journalists, I will never forgive you for thinking that. And so I feel terrible for anybody who lost their job, but I'm a Cleveland.com employee and I stand up for Cleveland.com and the more than 70 journalists we have at Cleveland.com. I worked for the plane dealer for until 2013 when we went digital on one side and there were some people who were digital and some people who were the newspaper. Again, it's very confusing. You don't have to worry about that, but my team is Cleveland.com. I will ride and die for Cleveland.com. I will fight for Cleveland.com. I will get in your face for Cleveland.com. If you give us crap, I will let you know about it. I will defend us. I will be proud of us. I will encourage you to support us. And I, on a personal basis, I could not feel worse for the great journalists at The Plain Dealer. And I wish them nothing but the best. Um, I am all about digital journalism, the future of journalism as it, as it happens on the internet, as it happens in this podcast, as it happens with our tech subscription. If you think that the world is about writing words on a sheet of paper that gets delivered to your doorstep, you're lost. That is not the deal. And great journalism does not mean in this day and age, newspaper journalism. Great journalism takes a lot of different forms. And Cleveland.com is one of those places. So that's why I didn't tweet about it. It's complicated. 
Um, but I know what I know in the end who my team is. And my team is at, at the advanced corporation that owns the plane dealer and cleveland.com um, and a lot of other places around the country. There is still a newspaper that will be delivered in Cleveland and there's going to be digital journalism stories in that newspaper. There are great journalists in Cleveland covering the coronavirus, covering the city, covering sports teams. That's not going to change. The designations of how it got split up was messy and I think unpleasant and unnecessary in some ways and super confusing for readers. Bottom line, there is still a plain dealer newspaper. There are a bunch of great journalists in Cleveland writing in that paper, but writing specifically for cleveland.com. We are three of them and we appreciate your support more than you could ever know. And by the way, there is a way cleveland.com now has an optional subscription, 10 bucks a month. This is for the, for the website because people paid for a paper and people don't get, aren't used to paying for a website. It's 10 bucks a month, which is 33 cents a day for all the news that anybody in Cleveland would care about. So if you want to go that route with cleveland.com, again, we would appreciate that. The tech subscriber stuff we do is extra. It's bonus content. I just sent out two texts on Friday morning with my thoughts about the draft. So I wanted to say that I defend journalism all the time. I also call out journalism when I think journalism is blowing it. Um, but that's how I feel about that situation. Um, last thing. Do you guys, so I covered the Bulls for like a year and a quarter during the era of the Last Dance documentary that started. It's about the last Bulls season. The first two episodes aired last Sunday. There's going to be two more episodes every Sunday on ESPN on Sunday nights for the next four weeks. I covered the fifth title when they beat the Jazz. I took over the middle of that season, and then I went uh, and covered most of the final season, but I left in May before the playoffs. I want to tell one story because it came up in the Scottie Pippen thing. And this is a journalism lesson for me. You guys want to hear a journalism lesson? You guys ready for a journalism lesson since I'm on a journalism rant? Of course. Sure. So the thing came up. So Scottie Pippen demanded a trade during that sixth title run at the start of that. He had foot surgery right before the season. He was out and he demanded a trade. And I remember this. And again, I was uh, a 20 four-year-old ding-dong covering the Bulls for a suburban paper. So when he demanded the trade, it came out in one of the suburban newspapers. The Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune covered the Bulls every day. And there was a newspaper called the Northwest Herald in the Northwest suburbs um, that also traveled with the Bulls. I think there were three traveling beat writers. And the beat writer for that suburban paper was the guy who broke the Scottie Pippen trade demand. And the story that I heard about it, that I heard him tell about it, is that he the day that the story came out, he was standing uh, in the hallway at halftime as the Bulls came off the court during a game. And again, Scottie Pippen wasn't playing. And this writer and Scottie Pippen had had previous conversations about Scottie's desire to be traded. They had already talked about it, but at that time it was off the record. And so I remember it coming out that like, hey, it came out that like Scottie Pippen demanded a trade at halftime. But the story I heard is that this guy knew it. He had it. He knew he was the only one who had it, but he didn't have permission to write it yet. And Scottie Pippen came off the court. The guy had positioned himself such that Scottie had to walk past him to get to the locker room. And Scottie pointed at him and said, write it. And then the guy had all the stuff. It wasn't like he did a halftime interview, but it was like the idea of building a relationship with the player where you can have honest discussions with him off the record that then lead to a finger point and a write it, which becomes the number one story in the sports world that day. Nathan Baird, what do you think of that journalism lesson? I mean, that is the journalism lesson. It's like what I try to tell younger people when they ask me about this job um, you know, people, people call us sports writers. I think writing is a lot of times the least important part of my job or the least important skill. Sometimes you can have within reason, you got to be able to like communicate effectively, but the whole job is who do you know? And what can you find out that the other person that the average person out there can't find out? Um, what can you tell them first? How can you surprise somebody every day with the information you can give them? It, it's all about 
relationships. That's the job. I can also remember on media day before the sixth season, um, they had everybody at podiums in the, in the practice facility at the Birdo center. Uh, and then, you know, people broke up and they were in groups around the court and, I was the beat writer for like a, uh, one of the two papers. It was like a newspaper war in like Gary, Indiana, which was a, a, a Southeast suburb of Chicago. And I worked at one of those papers and there was a second paper there. And the columnist for like my competing local paper, as I remember, it was the guy who asked Jerry Krause the question that led to the players don't win championships, organizations win championships quote. And I was there and in that documentary, they showed Jerry Krause and he said like, oh, the guy said, you know, that I actually said players alone don't win championships. And the guy said, yeah, he left that word out. I think that was that guy it was like the columnist for my competing Gary newspaper. But I was there. I was standing next to Jerry Krause when he said it, just scribbling stuff down, not asking questions because I was an idiot. Um, and I think I have to I have a big tub full of old newspaper clippings from when I covered them. And I, I want to go back like in my paper archives online from then. I think I put that quote in like the 18th paragraph because like it didn't. It's like the quote that ended the Bulls dynasty. I heard it come out of Jerry Krause's mouth in like a somewhat small setting. And I think I put it in the 18th paragraph of my story because that's how good of a journalist I was back then. Steven, you love basketball. Do you have any questions for me about covering the Bulls? I have so many questions about you for covering the Bulls that we won't be able to keep this under 30 minutes. Oh, we're already at 50. So oh, wow. Away. <laughs> for, okay. Let, let's – What for you as a young guy who was about pretty much my age when that was going on, that, I'm going to guess that was your first, like, major sports writing beat. Is that right to assume? Yeah, I covered some Big Ten stuff. And I, I mean, I was like okay. a high school beat writer and covered some Big Ten stuff. And then our Bulls beat writer left. So that was like in like year two and a half of my year one and a half, year two of okay. out of college. But yes. So, so through the first two hours of this 10 hour documentary that we're going to be watching, how much of, you know, what, what we what the rest of the world has gotten to see was, I guess, the way that you received it back then as a 24 year old. You know, watching Michael Jordan tease Jerry Krause and call him short every day. Scottie Pippen sitting around hurt with an attitude. Like, what was the vibe that you kind of, you know, picked up on as a young guy covering, you know, pretty much the most popular team in America? Yeah, I mean, I missed a lot of that stuff because I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't locked in. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have great relationships individually with players at that point. Um, mm -hmm. I caught a lot of stuff after other guys reported it, and I reported on their reporting. You know, I, they were very professional. You know, the thing I always talk about is Jordan. You never saw Jordan at his locker until he had on a suit and had a diamond stud in his ear. Like, he never let you see him. Like, you weren't in there when he was in a towel. You know, you were in there when he was Michael Jordan. He was in the back. And so a lot of that infighting, you know, I didn't see him call Jerry Krause that kind of stuff because, like, I wasn't – This some of this behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, you know, you hear these national reporters who were talking about it. I was like, I didn't know. So like I, I knew you knew there was discord, but to the to the public public, I thought they still handled their business pretty well. You know, like it, it wasn't um, yes, they were calling Jerry Krause out on the bus and, you know, in the training room and that kind of thing. They, you know, they weren't doing it in the locker room with with 60 reporters in there. But, uh, you know, it, you knew it was a, I mean, it was a circus. It was an absolute it was an absolute circus. Um, so I'll ask one more question. Then. As you've been here for 15 plus years at this point, and you got to cover that, what is the closest thing to you covering that? What what Ohio State season, whether it's a bad Mata season or a Jim Trestle season or an Urban Meyer season, comes closest to you know what that was like? Probably the 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 tattoo situation with Ohio State. Okay like the circus atmosphere of like there's local people, but there's also national people paying a lot of attention to stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So even when like Ohio state was like going to a national championship, that couldn't, that couldn't rival the Jordan bulls. You know, the 2014 Buckeyes didn't rival that, that Ohio's when Ohio state was like going down with the tattoo gate stuff. And there was like stuff popping all the time. Um, that would be the closest to this, but it was just a different level. You knew you were in, you knew you were in the circus with the Jordan thing to a degree that, um, you know, certainly the, you know, the LeBron stuff now and, and, and stuff with the NBA now would rival it, but it's hard for college football to match that. Um, two last stories. One is 
Um, I tried to, um, my boss wanted me to do a story. My boss is who are our boss now, Dave Campbell, who was my boss back then and is now our sports editor at cleveland.com, wanted me to do a story on Dennis Rodman's workout regime. And so I um, asked the Bulls PR people if I could like talk to Dennis one-on-one about his workout. And they were like, I don't know. Why don't you try to wait one day after practice and wait for him to finish lifting weights. And when he's leaving, you can ask him if he'll talk to you about his workout. And I was like, okay. So I wait in the Bulls practice facility, I mean, at least an hour, maybe longer, like by myself. All the other reporters are gone. I'm like sitting in a stairwell waiting for Dennis Rodman to come down from the weight room. Nervous, nervous as heck. And finally he comes down and I say, Dennis, can I talk to you about your workout? And he says, wardrobe? I don't want to talk about my wardrobe. And he leaves. And I was like, no. I said, <laughs> And it was like, I don't know if I was so nervous that I garbled my words. But it was the, the Rodman piece is the third uh, part of this coming up. This is, I think, my best chance to be in it because Dennis Rodman would never come in the locker room after a game. And he would just walk down the hallway. And I chased Dennis Rodman down a hallway trying to like shove a recorder near his mouth and, and shout out a question with 10 other people so many times that um, that is my best hope, I think, to have my elbow show up in this thing. So, um, yeah, that's my – and I got to sit down my season. I did a season preview of the 97-98 Bulls, and I did get a sit-down, a one-on-one with Phil Jackson to talk about his managerial style and what it's like to be a leader. And I remember being like so excited for that. It's like we got two folding chairs. They put them out sort of on like the, on the courts at the practice facility. And it was like, wait until after practice, hang around. And then Phil will come back out and talk to you. And I was like, I got my one-on-one with Phil Jackson. So um, it was, I didn't know anything. Uh, it was crazy. TV reporters used to leave the courtside seats in like the third quarter to go line up in the hallway to get ready to go in the locker room so they could have good camera and microphone positioning around Michael's locker. They wouldn't even watch the end of the stinking game. Um, And we sat along the baseline, like right in the first row along the baseline was my seat. And the Bulls cheerleaders were four feet in front of me. And so every break, the cheerleaders would stand up and do like their cheer routine 20 inches from my face and this was in the late 90s and the song that they always played was that um come on ride a trade come on and ride it that song right you know what i'm song i'm talking about right come on yes. ride a train, right is that i yes. sang it correctly right? you have no you, idea what that you song sort of is. crucified it but yes come on, ride a train, ride. that yeah i've never heard that, that from, from my life any, you probably have. You just can't no, identify no, no. it based Can on that. It? Maybe I'll get a clip and I'll put it in for real. Anytime. for that. <laughs> no, that's true. Anytime I hear that song for the rest of my life, all I can think about is the Bulls cheerleader. And it was usually the same cheerleader who was 10 inches from my face and like performing a routine that she was trying to project to thousands of people behind me. And I was like, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know if I should look. Should I not look? Is it an insult to her if I look away? I feel weird looking right at her. But that was my life as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old, uh, clueless Chicago Bulls reporter. So look for the cheerleader dancing. Look for uh, Dennis Rodman in the hallway and enjoy the documentary. So um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know anything. It's remarkable to look back and think about how little I knew back then. Um, I knew nothing. So anyway... Anything else we need to cover before we let people get to their weekend? No, because I think by the time they listen to this, the second and third rounds are probably already gone. So probably not a lot to go into there. Check back with us Monday and we'll have a full breakdown of how this all went down for Ohio State. Okay. Um, Predictions. Who is the first Buckeye off the board in the second round? And I guess the candidates uh, are J.K. Dobbins, Jonah Jackson, Malik Harrison, KJ Hill, next buck I take in, whether it's the second or the third, who will it be? Nathan, who's your pick? I guess I'm leaning Dobbins. Steven? I would say Dobbins as well. 
I will say, I think it's interesting. Like we had a podcast, a discussion on this podcast before about how like, oh, Ohio State's losing a star in J.K. Dobbins, but maybe Master Teague can be like that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire guy at LSU. He wasn't that – and he's the – Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is the first running back taken. He's the only running back who goes in the first round. It's like, yeah, LSU had a good running back. Like we were sort of debating how much of a – how good does your running back have to be for you to be great. It turns out that LSU had yes. – they had a Heisman-winning quarterback – who was great. They also had first-round receivers, a first-round running back, a first-round pass rusher, and first-round secondary guys. So it's like – and a first-round linebacker. So it's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) LSU was awesome across the board, and Joe Burrow kind of brought it all together. All right. That's our podcast. Thanks, as always, to you guys for listening. Uh, Again, enjoy the rest of the draft on uh, Friday and Saturday. A lot lot more Buckeyes coming off the board. And then uh, starting next week, we'll have a lot of different things to talk about because the draft will not be hanging over us. So for Nathan Baird and Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>